Uh, this morning's reading is from Esther 8, and you can find that on the Church Bibles on page 414. So that's Esther 8. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favour in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, 
rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honour. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Well, in a moment, we're going to have a look at that passage. Just a few things to mention. You know the question time is coming up. And you already know the sermon outline in your service sheet. And finally, let's pray. Ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we have together, reflecting and meditating on your word. Might we, as we reflect on these things, know you better. And so we might understand how we relate to you and who you are. Amen. Every now and then when uh, speaking to another Christian, he or she says something that makes me stop and think. It makes me stop and think, what does that even mean? One such example of this phrase is this phrase. Sometimes you just have to let go and let God. Now I remember quite vividly first hearing this phrase and thinking, well that could mean all sorts of things. And I have no idea which one is particularly meant on this occasion. Now sometimes it's possible to find out where such a phrase originates and what was meant by the phrase when it was first spoken. But even if you do that, it doesn't necessarily help you understand what the current person means when they say it. And the reason it's so difficult to understand is because a phrase like this is so vague. The phrase as it stands is quite obscure. So I think the key points I would want clarification on is firstly, what does it mean to let go? And then second, what does it mean to let God? And then I'd want to know, if you don't let go, can you not let God? Is God unable to act until you let go? Now, I don't feel like I can answer any of these questions because there's very little to go on in the context context of the phrase. But what we can do is compare this phrase with Esther and Mordecai's approach when they engage with God. In our account of Esther... We have seen how Esther has placed herself in harm's way for the sake of her people. We've seen how Haman has gone to great lengths to plan the demise of the Jews. And we've seen that every plan Haman has taken to destroy the Jews, God has used to bring about Haman's destruction. What we've seen is 
God's providence at work. Now, if we go back to that initial conversation between Mordecai and Esther, when Mordecai gently encouraged Esther to speak to the king, what would have it meant to Esther if Mordecai had said, sometimes you just have to let go and let God? Maybe if this is what she heard Mordecai say, she may never have been so shrewd about how she revealed Haman. Perhaps she wouldn't have organised the two consecutive banquets. Perhaps she wouldn't have approached the king at all. Esther was careful. And I would worry a little if we believe we just needed to let go, would we be in danger of acting without caution. What is interesting is at the beginning of the story, apart from the fact that Esther had become queen, there really was nothing more to suggest that she would succeed in her task. It was never revealed to Esther how things would unfold. It's only after the events that Esther or Mordecai could reflect back and see God's providence at work just as the narrator has done for us. If Esther had let go and let God, maybe nothing would have happened. Of course, Mordecai does actually comment on what will happen if Esther does nothing. When Mordecai spoke to Esther, far from saying let go and let God, Mordecai said this, For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai's advice is not to let go and let God. His advice is to act. Because Esther's presence in the kingdom may be... God's means of salvation for the Jews. And what we see as the account unfolds is Esther is extremely careful. She clearly weighed each request she made to the king and at each point evaluated how she would approach him. She was extremely active in ensuring that the king's decision went in her favour. And it's as she does this that God's providence is working everything out so that the king does bring her the answer she hopes for. But here is the thing. Esther never let go. Far from it, she is proactive. And for God to act, Esther doesn't have to move out of the way. Rather, God has brought about his plan through all those who've been involved. Now, by the time we get to Esther 8, we realise that Esther's work has yet to end. Haman is dead, but the edict to kill the Jewish nation still stands. The problem can be found in verse 8. An edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring cannot be revoked. It's kind of laughable. This means the most powerful king in the known world is unable to save the Jews. 
But Mordecai has been given Haman's old position. He's also been given the signet ring that belonged to Haman. Along with Haman's estate that the king gave to Esther and Esther gave to Mordecai. And so now Esther approaches the king yet again. And her request is simple. If I'm pleasing in your sight, then let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite. The king responds to this request in verse 7 to 8. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews, in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Now there are a few ways that we can take these two verses. The first is effectively, look at what I've already done for you and Mordecai. Yes, I will happily allow you to write an edict, because an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the signet ring cannot be revoked. Or the alternative, maybe the king's feeling a bit frustrated. When he describes all that he's done for them, he's saying, haven't I done enough Then he goes on to say, besides, I cannot revoke an edict that's been made, but go ahead. If you want to have a go, write another edict. But what difference will it make? Now, there is a third option that could be a bit of both. It could be, yes, look at what I've done for you, but beware. Haman's edict cannot be revoked. Now, whatever the king meant, Esther and Mordecai take this on board. The old edict stands. It cannot be revoked. But a new edict, equally unrevocable, must be written, and that will give the Jews a fighting chance. And this is what Mordecai does. Uh, Mirroring the original edict, they give the king's permission for the Jews to defend themselves and destroy their enemies. And horses were sent out, as happened when the first edict was written, so everyone could hear the new one. And the response to the edict is joy among the Jews. They celebrate with a feast and a holiday. And the chapter ends with people declaring themselves Jews because they fear them. Now this is interesting since the outcome of the battle will not be made known until we get to Esther 10. But here already the people believe it will be the Jews that will prevail over their enemies. To the extent that the safest position to be in is on the side of the Jews. 
And it isn't the first time this sentiment has been found in the book of Esther. Remember those faithful words spoken by Haman, sorry, spoken by Haman's wife, found in 6, verse 13. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you've begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you'll not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Once Haman's wife begins to see his downfall, she concludes it's as good as certain. And when the edict is written that the Jews can defend themselves against their enemy, the people conclude that it's the Jews that will be victorious. But the success is not to be found in the Jewish nation. The success is to be found in the fact that the Jews serve the uncreated creator. Lots of biblical concepts have made it into popular culture. For example, it isn't unusual for the big, powerful corporate giant to be compared with Goliath. And the small individual who's taking on the corporate giant is seen as the boy David. And this is because people believe that the story is about the weak person winning against the powerful person. But is that the real essence of the account of David and Goliath? There is some truth in it. The narrator narrator really does enjoy describing how the puny boy comes before the experienced soldier who happens to be absolutely humongous. But then David isn't experienced, inexperienced, killing liars and bears with his slingshot. And yet David doesn't approach Goliath because of his experience. He approaches him because the battle is the Lord's. And as soon as he says those words, his part in the battle fades away. All of a sudden, the characters of the story change. Now it's Goliath that looks inexperienced unprepared and small as he stands opposing the God who spoke and the world came into existence. The one who breathed the breath of life into his image bearers. The one who sustains every aspect of his creation. The people side with the Jews because of their God and the fact that the battle is the Lord's. But notice, even here, David doesn't let go and let God. He runs a Goliath, he takes a stone from his bag, and slung it and struck Goliath. But the victory belonged to God. Now all this has significance for us. For in the eyes of the world, the people of God are considered insignificant. And in one sense, the people of God ourselves would be the first to admit just that. 
But that's because our significance is not found in who we are or in our size, whether we're large or small. Rather, our significance is to be found in the God that we serve. And as we've seen, as we've worked through the book of Esther, when things look to be against the people of God, God is working his purposes even through those who oppose him. And we find ourselves in a phase of redemptive history where God's salvation has now come. And he's simply calling his own to him. And we await the final battle. The battle is described in Revelation. And it's a battle that's over before it's begun. Because the battle is the Lord's. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we reflect on the great encouragement that the Jews must have uh, had when they heard this new edict, we pray, Lord, that we would appreciate the full uh, extent of what it means for you, um, for the battle to be yours. As we search the scriptures, we see that you will fight for your people and we pray, Lord, that we would appreciate that you work in your providence through all things. As we anticipate the great battle uh, at the second coming, we thank you, Lord, that we can be content knowing that it's over before it's begun. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the start there'd be an opportunity for questions or comments in light of the things we're going to think about. The opportunity is now arising. So any thoughts or comments? Archie, you've got a question. Go on then. Oh, okay, let me just have a quick look. Um, so all that we've got to go on is in verse 17, and it says, And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So I don't know, we can't give a specific number, but many suggests a lot. Maybe? Hundreds or thousands, yeah. Yes, Nikki. Interesting question. Yeah, that's really good. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's a good spot. So let me just kind of repeat the um, question for the recording as I explore answering it. So back in four... Verse 15, it says, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my younger women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him.
which until you mentioned it then, I hadn't really spotted. Which means the Jews were in on all this in as far as they knew, obviously Esther was a Jew, they knew that Esther was going to approach the king, and so they were probably following on how things unraveled, which I don't think I really appreciated until you said that. So when we get to the revelation that we've had now, where in 8 verse um, 16, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honour in every province and every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached. There was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So, yeah, I think that's quite interesting. So your question is, Nikki, because I've not re repeated it, is, um, is it have the Jews um, understood who God is where they didn't appreciate it quite so much back in chapter 4? Okay, yeah, fair enough. So back in 4 verse 3, there's weeping and lamenting. And so is that showing a lack of confidence in God? Yeah, yeah I, th I think that's an interesting thing to explore. Um, I think there's a sense in that that's probably the appropriate thing to do where something like that happened. And the weeping and lamenting actually does suggest, I guess if they're just like, oh, whatever, uh, there's nothing we can do about it, that might suggest a neglect of God. But because they do that, that might more mean God see our weeping, lamenting and mourning. Yeah, as you kind of, yeah. But I do think, what I do think is quite interesting, and we've kind of been touched upon this a little bit, is that, as we've said, God isn't really mentioned. And I do think, as we read through it, it's really quite intriguing because he isn't mentioned and yet he's so included and so but it, when you read it it feels a little bit uncomfortable because you kind of think why haven't they said they lament to the Lord or why haven't they said uh, why doesn't God Mordecai say God will rescue us he doesn't he says rescue you know salvation will come to us or rest we will be rescued um uh, but it's always implied, and I think it's quite cleverly put together how we see God, like you say, God's providence unravel, um, but not necessarily because they're neglecting it or unaware of it. Just, yeah, I think it's, yeah. Cool. Uh, time for one more? Unless we don't count our cheese, then it's time for two more. That's rude, isn't it? It was a short one, yours, though, wasn't it, Archie? Caroline. 
Yeah, I think that's what we've got to assume. So I think we, as we read through the account, we've got to assume when the first edict is made, the, they're not allowed to defend themselves and they're just to sit back and be annihilated. Um, and they're not really in a position of power, presumably, because they're, ju- you know, they're very low down the pecking order and this edict has been written by the king. So, yeah, I, I, it doesn't, doesn't say anything explicitly, but I think that's what we've got to assume. Anyone else got a burning question? In that case, we're going to sing our next song, which is There is a Redeemer.